Welcome to the latest episode of Schneps Connects. I'm your host, Josh Schneps. We love to touch base on hot trending topics, and this is one of the biggest ones, not just in uh, New York, but across the country, which is opinions on medical and recreational use of marijuana. In the last few months, five states have legalized recreational marijuana. It appears as though a growing percentage of the country will be able to use and have cannabis in their possession. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed the state bill to legalize marijuana just this past March 31st, and there's an estimated $350 million in annual tax revenues that the bill would bring to the state, which certainly is needed. Cuomo said it would be right, it would right the wrongs of the past by putting an end to harsh prison sentences. It's going to be a lengthy process to bring recreational cannabis use to New York, and a roadmap is being built on what this will all look like over the coming years. Today, I have with us Elizabeth Case Esquire, who's part of a large firm in New York, where she is chair of the Criminal Law Practice Group and co-chair of the Medical Marijuana Law Group, and Craig Johnson, the founder and chief executive officer of Long Point Advisors, who's been a long-respected figure in New York politics. Craig served as a member of New York State Senate for two terms, representing the 7th Senate District, which is Northwest Nassau County. Both are here as experts about the legal and business side of marijuana and the opportunity it brings to New York State. So thank you guys, Liz and Craig, thank you for being here and helping to shed light on this important topic to New York. Thanks, Josh. We, uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to talk about, I won't say hot, I'll call it burning, because I think that uh, maybe apropos. There you uh, go. I like that. Going on. <laughs> so Elizabeth, you have an interesting and impressive background relating directly to the subject of cannabis. And I'm aware that you are a frequent lecturer and commentator on matters pertaining to criminal law and medical marijuana. So tell us a little bit more about your background in law in New York, both in in the private and public sectors. Thank you. I started my career as a prosecutor in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office more than 20 years ago, and then went into private criminal defense work. Um, in about 2014, as I was joining a large firm, um, we saw that, that the Compassionate Care Act was being passed by New York. And in that, my law firm uh, deals with healthcare, uh, doctors, nurses, nursing homes, et cetera. It seemed like the perfect intersection of um, work in the field of criminal law, as well as health organization to see where the Compassionate Care Act would fit in. Um, since 2014, obviously the Compassionate Care Act has taken off, it's expanded, and um, from the early days of cannabis in New York, it was uh, very clear that lawyers would have a lot of, well, I would say demand in the space. And so since then, we, I've been following it, uh, lecturing about it, giving lots of CLEs, um, helping with risk management for corporations in the health-related fields as they intersect with um, the new regulations for medical cannabis. Now, uh, with the passing of the adult use bill, uh, obviously we're on the precipice of a complete new revolution of commercial space as well as medical cannabis. Things will mm -hmm. really change um, and things will really um, evolve, I think in a very quick clip um, with the addition of this law in New York State. It's extremely exciting. Um, and for the past six or seven years or so, um, you know, we have been working in the space to get ready for this moment. 
Terrific. And Craig, we talked a little bit about your uh, elected office position, and you also get involved in government affairs, law, politics, and business, and you, you really earned a great reputation as an accomplished lobbyist, among other things. So tell us a little bit about your background and what you're working on. Yeah, thanks, Josh, and I appreciate it. Um, I've been out of office, or I was a I was an elected official for over 10 years, first serving in Nassau County as a legislator. And then, as you noted, um, I served two terms in the New York State Senate. And what's interesting is I worked closely both with the sponsor of MURDA, uh, the, marijuana, the new marijuana law, Liz Kruger, um, as well as Diane Savino, who was the author of the Compassionate Care Act or the medical cannabis law during my two terms. And I can definitely tell you that both of them um, were focused on this issue long before anybody else uh, paid attention to it. Um, and since uh, serving in the legislature, as you noted, I've been very much involved in government affairs and um, lobbying and started my own firm about two years ago um, where I represent companies and individuals uh, all, across, uh, all across the country, but I represent them in Albany and as well as New York City, as well as localities, municipalities um, on a variety of issues. Um, you know, with respect to cannabis, I really got involved around the same time that Liz did uh, back in 2014 when the Ca Compassionate Care Act was passed, uh, I represented an entity that tried to secure uh, one of the first medical marijuana licenses and worked on a lot of the application process uh, with them. And since that time, I've been advising companies uh, on those issues, on this issue. And uh, as this bill was coming to fruition, uh, worked behind the scenes to uh, kind of flesh out some of the issues that were there. And now, quite frankly, since it's become law, um, you know, my phone has been ringing off the hook like Liz's. Mm. Uh, our emails are blowing up because people have a lot of questions. And this is a, you know, what seems to be an easy issue is actually a very complicated, uh, complex one um, that we're happy to talk to you today about, you know, giving some answers, giving some guidance um, to kind of see, you know, where things are going to go. There's a lot of money. Uh, you know, Liz tells me all the time she likes to call it the green rush like everybody else does. Um, but with that green rush, you know, you got to make sure you have the right tools, the pickaxes, so to speak, um, in order to make sure that you can find the right thing to do in the right place. Yeah, so I, I think when the legislation was uh, signed uh, on March 31st, it seemed that everything was settled. However, it seems that this is going to be a really lengthy process to bring legal recreational cannabis to life. So can you give a little bit more insight on you know, what this process is going to look like and what the real timeline is for the general public to see a change? I, I look there and, you know, Liz and I um, will talk about this, certain differences because there's certain components of the law that right now, the law has taken effect. There's certain things you can do right now, but, you know, for your listeners and folks that want to get into the business, that's going to take a little bit longer. Uh, you know, commentators seem to have a general viewpoint that you're not going to see dispensaries uh, in place until sometime in 2022. They estimate 12 to 18 months. And a lot of that's because the law's implementation requires a number of things. First thing is we have to create under the law, it's called the Cannabis Control Board. And they're really the entity that's gonna do a lot of the approval process. There's a, it's a five member board, three of them appointed by the governor, one appointed by the state senate, one appointed by the assembly. 
and we know we're pretty comfortable and confident that the board is going to be put in place before mid-June. And the reason why is the state legislature goes out of a session by mid-June. The chairperson of the board has to be confirmed by the Senate. So you got to confirm them before they leave in June. We expect that to occur. Um, it, but it's again, it's the CCB that's going to review all the applications uh, to, to cultivate, process, distribute, deliver, and dispense the cannabis. I mean, the law gives a lot of authority to the CCB. Um, the problem is for everybody is there's no application right now to, that's been created to date. There are no rules. There's no regulations. The law sets it up that it's going to be this board that's going to be running this rulemaking process. They have the rulemaking authority. Um, they're going to work with what's called the Office of Cannabis Management, which is a the newly state agency that's going to oversee this process. They're going to work together, but that all has to be you know put into place. So you have the framework, but now you need the nuts and bolts, so to speak, to take care of it. And from my point of view, um, you know, just studying medical cannabis for all these years, that was governed by the Department of Health, which has obviously been long established. So the original framework to guide and govern medical cabinet cannabis was already in place long before the law was implemented. This is the opposite. You know, this is really, you know, basically saying, yes, we're going to legalize this. Wait, now we have to formulate all of the organization structure and regulations to allow for it. Um, so I think that it's going to be a fast train once that board comes together, um, but it, it's going to take that kind of uh, organization to take hold to get all those different approvals before lawyers can really give concrete advice about how to enter the space. So what kind of advice are you giving to businesses that are interested in getting involved in the industry at this well, point? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time to um, be a lawyer that way, because what we're saying is um, dependent upon, you know, the, how we're reading the tea leaves, right? Because there is no specific guidance that actually is, you know, black and white letter law. We are talking about trends. We're talking about um, things that we can predict based upon the intention of the legislature, how we think this will look. You know, will it follow a Massachusetts model? Will it follow a California model? Will it follow, you know, Colorado or Illinois, Pennsylvania? There are certainly enough other um, states to, to see how it's gone, where it went right, where it went wrong. Um, and so we can advise some predictions, uh, though we can't really be held to that uh, based upon past performances of other states. That being said, um, when the Office of Cannabis Management is formed and the CCB is formed, and there is a real roadmap and guidance for what the, the application process will look like, um, you know, you want to advise clients how to best use this time effectively when time is on your side to get yourself ready, to paper yourself, to get into the corporate structure that you'd want to make an application mm -hmm. to get into the various different spaces. So, you know, the advice might be different for somebody who wants to go into the agricultural side of this or the retail side of this or the delivery side of this. Um, and each different facet of the laws that uh, we expect to come down will have very different impact and different formation. You know, one other thing, Josh, is to add um, in advising clients, when I advise clients on the lobbying side is because it's a rulemaking process, you can, you know, have some involvement in, in 
trying to figure out how those rules get made and, and speaking to folks in the government, whether it is at the OCM or, or um, other state agencies to try and indicate to them how things may work. And so you have the ability to kind of talk to them um, as, and highlight that if you're thinking about you know, setting a, a limit on the amount that you can cultivate, you know, demonstrating why a certain level may work better in New York State than it does in, in say, Illinois. And so there is a lot of room here um, for practitioners on the legal side, on the government affairs side to help and assist clients. And a lot of it is right now working through what that client, you know, what they want to do, whether they want to wait or whether or not they want to try and help, you know, guide or help um, make an impact when it when it comes to that rulemaking regulatory process. And what changed on the date that the the legislation was signed? Was there anything in particular as far as um, you know people being prosecuted that that carry uh, cannabis or anything else that changed right away from that March thirty first signing? The first drastic change, again, from a criminal law point of view, is that anyone now can possess three ounces or less, 24 grams of cannabis, or 24 ounces of cannabis concentrate on their person. It's, and it's three ounces to cut into, this is, you know, how Liz and I work. Uh, it's three ounces of, you know, seed, not seed, um, plant, and 24 grams of cannabis concentrate or, or your cannabis oil. So, just But from a criminal law per perspective, that's an obscene amount of personal possession that's now been mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, just a couple of years ago, that kind of amount would have been demonized with a misdemeanor. Some people might have been charged, you know, up front with a felony for, uh, you know, th those types of concentrates and things. But that's a fundamental shift. Um, and then also um, convictions for crimes that are that are now legalized under MURDA will be, if they haven't already, been automatically expunged. So for people that are currently serving jail time or that have had it on their record. Yeah. So that's where things get a little bit trickier and mm -hmm. where the, the idea of lawyers involvement and proactivity um, becomes into center stage. You know, anyone who has past convictions, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that might have a marijuana um, misdemeanor or felony conviction on their record where where it falls under murder and there are you know, different statutes have different um relationship to murder. So I don't want to get too, too specific, but fundamentally most marijuana convictions will automatically be expunged without any kind of lawyer effort or um, motion practice. Um, if somebody unfortunately is, is sitting in jail right now for a marijuana conviction, um, hopefully their lawyer is, you know, really, really, really proactively getting them out. Um, but I have a feeling uh, those people are few and far between at this stage of mm -hmm. the law. You know, there are a couple other things that right now the law also uh, provides. On the medical side of things, you see an expansion of medical conditions that are eligible uh, for medical marijuana. And I think, you know, with the way the law is drafted, I get the sense, given my experience as a former elected official, as a former legislator, that they want to kind of, I don't want to say put an end, but they've, they've gone back periodically um, to kind of expand the definitions. They now basically put in a carve out um, or a, all, a, a catch all for uh, what conditions are eligible for medical marijuana. There's just some are 
specific ALS is now covered. Rheumatoid arthritis is covered. Mm -hmm. you know, treatment of autism now you can get in medical marijuana. Uh, but what they also do is they also say, or for any other condition certified by a practitioner. And so they essentially, you know, leave it up to a practitioner who's going to evaluate a patient. And if they make the reasonable determination that the person would benefit, you know, his, his or her medical condition would benefit from the use of medical marijuana, they could, they could prescribe it. So which also I hope is a nod towards doctors who've been skittish about being in the space because early on um, we saw a, a real hesitancy from the medical profession to get certified and to go through their continuing medical educational requirements um, to be licensed to recommend marijuana. Um, because I think there was, a, you know, just a, a hesitancy of, of, you know, well, I don't necessarily know enough about marijuana to recommend it. Um, but now what I would say is the societal sea change in how we view this substance. Uh, I think doctors, even from 2014 to 2021, are much more um, accepting of the, the concept of marijuana in treating patients. There's a lot more science available. There's a lot more studies. And certainly um, there's a lot more interest from patients to receive it. So uh, this whole catch-all provision that Craig mentioned um, is really great for both the doctor side, the patient side, and obviously the dispensary side. So it sounds like there's also a lot of social equity issues. Can you talk a little bit about the goal of a large percentage of the licenses going to MWBE or veterans, et cetera? Yes. So I think what a lot of people are starting to see or how they view the law is New York's effort to become what the gold standard on social equity. Right now, if you talk to practitioners in the field, they would probably look to Illinois and point to Illinois as the state that really has been promoting social equity when it comes to the licensing. I'd, add, I'd also add in Massachusetts, um, I'm also licensed to practice in Massachusetts and I've you know, they studied that law. They were very proactive um, and, and specific in detailing their social justice component to uh, legalizing adult use cannabis. So, and, you know, for New York and what New York's trying to do is a number of things, you know, first, and I think you may have referenced it, you know, the goal, there's an explicit goal in the legislation. They want 50% of adult use licenses to be awarded to you know, social and economic equity applicants. Um, you know, 50% of it. Illinois, for example, is seeking, you know, provide 25% for dispensary licenses and 20% for the, you know, the grow processor or transportation licenses. 40% of the tax revenue that comes in would go to community grant, to a community grant and reinvestment fund. And that's money that's going to go into these communities that have uh, suffered um, during, you know, the time where cannabis uh, was illegal. Uh, in New York State. You know, the law also provides for other social equity programs, very specific ones, such as low and zero interest loans, um, reduced and waived fees, and assistance in preparing applications for those who would qualify as, you know, social and economic equity applicants. You know, one interesting provision um, that, that highlights the desire for um, New York State to, to, to help these applicants is the existing medical marijuana operators um, they will have the ability, as, I, as we talked about, Josh, there's, we've allowed vertical integration for medical marijuana. One of the things that the medical marijuana operators are going to be able to do is they're going to be able to 
get a special license for three of their dispensaries that they'll be able to sell both adult recreational and medical marijuana. It'll have to be their product because it's vertically again integrated, mm-hmm. but they'll be able to they'll be able to apply for a special license. That fee that to get this one-time special license, that fee will actually go to fund social equity programs. Again, a very specific requirement in you know set out in the law. You know, similarly, the micro business that we talked about, they're the other exception to the, ver- the non-vertical integration. They are vertically integrated. So the micro business um, is allowed to be vertically integrated. Now, while there's no definition in the law um, of what a micro business is, and that's what the rules and regulations are going to be designed to do, is to define some of these terms like micro business. If you look at places like New Jersey or other states that have defined it, they kind of you know indicate that these types of social and economic equity applicants are going to be the ones who are going to be doing a micro business, um, an MWBE, for example, a uh, a veteran who's been disabled through sir you know by their service in the military, um, you know those who have been previously convicted of a cannabis related crime, and, you know these are the equity applicants. They're going to be the ones with micro business. They're the ones who are going to be able to be vertically integrated. I think, you know, one other thing that's very interesting about the law is the law expressly states that extra priority is going to be given in licensing applications to an applicant who is an individual from a community disproportionately impacted by the enforcement of cannabis, someone who is a low who is who is low income for the area, or has either been convicted of cannabis related crime or had a family member convicted. So the law again is working very hard hard to ensure that those who are disadvantaged or have been historically disadvantaged get an advantage um, through this law. And uh, just to look at Massachusetts for a minute, in Massachusetts, they have in their provisions of application allowed for the um, the MBE or the um, applicant who is from a socially disadvantaged or social equity program background, um, basically like a fast pass uh, where they stand in a different line to have their applications reviewed. Um, I think of Disney World where you're trying to get on Space Mountain. Um, so, you know, there's there's going to be something um, probably like this within the New York system as well. And the reason being that they, you know, people who have all the sophistication and all of the tools to hire lawyers and lobbyists and, and to get into, you know, in front of um, these uh, those people rubber stamping the applications, there's also going to be an opportunity for those who don't have those resources and sophistication to get in. And in fact, you know, just just a piggyback on that, you know, we talked about the, you know, you know, Cannabis Control Board, we talked about the Office of Cannabis Management. There's a third group that's been created um, in this law, and it's a, an advisory board, the State Cannabis Advisory Board. There are 13 voting members of the board, uh, along with representatives um, who are ex officio non-voting members who come from certain state agencies. But what's important about this board is it's, the law specifically requires to be geographically balanced and diverse. And the members have to have certain expertise, whether it's in public health or substance abuse, disorder treatment, criminal justice, drug policy. And it has to include residents who've been impacted by cannabis prohibition, who've had prior drug convictions. So there's a, and this board is designed to give specific advice to to the cannabis control board throughout the process. They also have the, you know, play a role, a very specific role uh, in the approval of delivery licenses and the license to delivery marijuana, you'll be able to have home delivery of it. Um, But I think it's a real showing 
um, by the state legislature, a real step that they want to correct the problems of the past. And in order to do so, they need the life experience uh, of those in and communities representation. and those who've been in, in the, who are from those communities and who have experienced those problems. Now talk a little bit about the opt-out. Can you share what that means in terms of municipalities? Yeah, that, that's an interesting, uh, a very interesting component. So the state legislature is always concerned about the, uh, not always, I take that back, strike you the word always, but uh, has more recently shown concern about the impact of state legislation on municipalities. Um, for example, uh, when Uber and Lyft and ride sharing became law in New York State a number of years ago, there was a provision in the law that gave cities and uh, cities of a certain size and counties um, the ability for a certain period of time to opt out of having ride sharing and ride sharing Uber in Nassau County is very different from is different from Uber in New York City. So similarly here with cannabis prior even prior to the enactment of this law there's been a lot of discussion in municipalities all across the state about whether or not you know municipalities should permit medical cannabis um, in their jurisdictions. So as the state legislature was considering taking the next step for adult use cannabis, they made the determination that they wanted to give the ability to certain municipalities the ability to opt out, but they were not going to give them a blank check, so to speak, of you can opt out when you know whenever you want. They made a very specific timeline, a deadline. They gave towns, cities, and villages until December 31st of this year to opt out from permitting businesses or to either dispense or to have the on-site consumption locale, your marijuana bar, so to speak. Um, by the way, that's a bar that you can't have alcohol in, um, mm -hmm. but you can have on-site consumption, um, call it the marijuana cafe. That's all they can opt out of. They can cannot opt out of a cultivation license. They cannot opt out of a distribution license. There's a very specific thing that they can opt out of. That's it. They can't prohibit. You know, they can't go any farther than by December 31st, they can opt out of dispensaries or on-site consumption. And even then, if a local municipal uh, ordinance allows a permissive referendum on the act, even if this, the town board or the village board or the city council of a city votes to opt out, an individual following the law could try and put together a permissive referendum that would actually put that opt out vote up for a full vote for the, the municipality. But assuming, huh. yeah, it, 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 it's a process, mm -hmm. but assuming if, if a municipality does not opt out at, uh, by December 31st, all they can do afterwards, they still have the power to zone and regulate the hours and the manner of operations of these dispensaries or on-site locations. They never lose that ability. So essentially a town can say, you know what, we're gonna allow this to happen, but we're gonna put you in a light industrial area, or we're gonna say that you can only be open from 12 to two. They can do certain things. All the dispensary license person can do is basically say, that's too unreasonable and makes it impractical for them to operate. They can challenge you know, that determination. But 
a, a locality chooses not to opt out, they still have certain regulatory powers to regulate over how something operates. What's also interesting though, and this is a little bit of like the carrot and the stick, is if a town opts out, and I, Josh, I don't know if you live in the city, um, but I, I think a lot of your residents live outside, the, a lot of your listeners live outside the city, you have oftentimes villages, incorporated villages within a town. Mm-hmm. If a town opts out, that does not affect an incorporated village. So Liz and I live in the town of North Hempstead, but we also live in the village of Baxter Estates. If the town of North Hempstead takes the step and says, we opt out of adult use marijuana. If the village of Baxter Estates says, you know what, we like this. We want the, we want the tax revenue. We think this is a great idea the village of Baxter Estates can still have its dispensary. And in fact, whatever, they get to keep the local share of the tax revenue while the town of North Hempstead loses the tax revenue. Once you're out, you do not get the tax revenue. But the very interesting thing is you can vote yourself out. I can opt out by 1231. And if I change my mind, if the town says in a year later, a new, you know, new supervisor, new town boards elected in. They're like, we love this idea. They can vote to come back in. So you you can opt out, but come back in. But if you don't exercise the opt out by twelve thirty one, you've lost it forever. So from, from uh, my point of view, in advising clients in the space, um, all of these types of uh, property uh, restrictions have been at the forefront of you know clients' minds, right? Well, I want to get into the space. I want to start to secure my leases or or buying up, you know, agricultural space, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, is this the right thing to do? Is this the right place to to basically plant seeds <laughs> for uh, for the pun intended? Um, and so, um, you know, it's a it's a complicated question. And it's a complicated answer because at this state, we don't know uh, what municipalities will do and what those time, place, and manner restrictions will be. And so uh, lawyers really need to be very careful in advising clients in the space about what they um, should be looking at with regard to any kinds of contracts. One last thing, and I want to probably turn your attention to something else. One last thing that's also important is the business, the applicant, um, and something that I know Liz and I are both advising clients you know, for different reasons is one of the things they have to do when they when they make that application, which is set forth in the law, is they have to give 30 days notice before they file their application with the municipality where they're going to give the municipality the opportunity to chime in to the OCB, um, or sorry, the CCB, um, mm-hmm. the board, about whether or not they support the idea. So if if we just, if I have a client, um, or Liz has a client that's going to come into North Hempstead, um, or Baxter states, they have to give notice um, that'll be on a form that'll be prescribed, you know, and created to the entity, the uh, municipality saying, I am intending to come to your location. So that way the village can then put something into the record that's considered by the Cannabis Control Board as to, yes, we think it's a great idea or no, we don't let us tell you why. Because at the end of the day, every application has to be approved by this Cannabis Control Board. Got it. So let's talk about the, you know, how the legalization came about. It seems to me that this has been talked about for a really long time. And, and from my outside perspective, I, I have to imagine that 
the pandemic had a lot to do with the need for cash. So do you see it the same way? And, and what do you think is going to happen? Do you think that New York State will get the tax revenue that they're actually forecasting? Yes. So that is terrific. It's a terrific question. And um, I actually um, wrote a piece for the Nassau County uh, Bar Association paper during the pandemic to discuss um, the reflection of will um, legalizing cannabis uh, have the same effect as ending prohibition and what that means for the potential tax raise. I think it's more than that. I actually think the pandemic was sort of the, the first shot heard around the world, but I actually think the, that all of the, the sort of social justice initiatives and um, you know, societal experience of the last year has really, really bamboozled legislators, especially progressive ones to say, I mean, if not now, when? Uh, with right. the coming off the heels of the Black Lives Matter movement and, and everything that that churned up in, you know, the emotional state, the political state um, and commercial, um, you know, it's the perfect, it's really the perfect moment to say, we can right the wrongs of the past and to those that aren't necessarily moved by social justice say you know the tax doles are, are really replete right now and need that fortification um you know i think your secondary question was will this do what it intends to do and that's a tricky question with a tricky answer um many of your listeners probably follow the press on cannabis and you know just recently a new york times article came out about canada and how it isn't you know necessarily the the green rush that it was intended to be um but i i still have a lot of hope for cannabis especially in light of the pandemic for a new um marketplace whereas canada is already seasoned New York is different because you know this is a job growth and a job creation. This is um, filling uh, bad, you know, empty commercial spaces. There's a whole lot of things that are right now present in everyone's mind and eye that were not present, you know, a few years ago for for Canada and for other cannabis uh, states that that went earlier. So I think New York is is poised to really uh, be um, an exception to the rule of, of having tremendous growth and opportunity. And secondly, you have to look at population ratios with land. You know, California has an issue where they are such a, a large physical state and so much of their land has been bought up and dedicated to growing cannabis. And they have a supply side issue where they can't sell it. Mm -hmm. Um, New York might actually have the opposite issue. Um, we are a densely populated area and we have far less vacant space. So where all of these commercial spaces might be picked up for retail or for consumption um, or for other so you know, business side, we might not have the same opportunity for growing. And that will become its own problem. Um, and frankly, from my point of view, you know, long keep the federal laws where they are so that we don't have an interstate opportunity for, you know, California weed to, to find its way over a New York border. I think that, you know, take, you know, parsing through your question, when, when I was a state senator, um, you know, medical cannabis, you know, was starting to bubble up a little bit. And, and I was actually supportive of it, um, given the fact that I had a parent who had suffered you know, from cancer and clearly felt that the cannabis would give her, would give her relief um, uh, from chemo during chemotherapy and the like. But I did have an issue with, you know, 
adult use recreational at the time. And, and I have to say that over the past 10 years and, you know, seeing what Liz has done you know, with her practice and seeing what elected officials have done and, and what the, the goal of this law is, I, 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 I turned, I, I very much turned and became a very big supporter of, of adult use recreational, legalizing it and, and seeing what the goals, um, what, what this bill will do. I, I think with that said, I, I share some of Liz's concerns about how this is going to, how successful this is going to be on the tax revenue side. You know, 13% tax is a big number. Um, you know, 9% to the state, 4% uh, that's imposed by the counties. That's a lot. And, you know, you certainly have a situation in, in a number of states where the black market is certainly doing a lot better than the state regulated market because of the tax issue. So, you know, we're going to, I think, really have to see. Um, certainly, a lot, there's a lot of opportunity for ancillary businesses. Um, and supportive businesses that will definitely you know create jobs that will definitely add to tax revenues here in New York State and a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, the, look, the law is set up to promote you know you know job creations and ones that will be potentially unionized um, with the requirements of having labor peace agreements put into place with uh, with um, with unions. So I think this is a positive step. You know, but we have to be very mindful uh, of what's going on in other states, you know, in other countries. Uh, sure. so, to speak. so I think, you know, let's, you know, let's keep an open mind. Let's be hopeful. Um, but we also have to, we may have to be prepared, you know, a couple years time because the, the law requires essentially an audit uh, of the, of, you know, where things are when it comes to licenses and where things come, where things are with respect to the businesses. These licenses are only a two-year license and you have to get renewed. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens, you know, during this very short time period. Um, so I think we have to be prepared to make necessary changes to ensure we're able to bring in, you know, that $300 million plus that has been projected each year uh, for cannabis. Well, this is going to be interesting to watch play out, and there's still a lot to be worked out. So how can our audience reach out to either one of you? Oh, sure. I mean, there's great ways to do it. Um, I could be, you know, uh, my website is uh, www.longpointadvisors, that's with an S, dot com. I could be reached. My email address is simple. It's Craig, C-R-A-I-G, at longpointadvisors.com. Um, I'm available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, the great thing about owning your own business, Josh, is, you know, you never leave it. And I, I love doing what I do. Um, and I feel very strongly uh, about, you know, that there's some real opportunity here for people out there, as long as they go through the right process and take mm -hmm. the time to do it right. For my email address is ecase at abramslaw.com. Well, Elizabeth and Craig, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your expertise. Our pleasure, and this was a lot of fun. Josh, thank you so much. Had a great time. Our pleasure. This is the Schneps Connects podcast. To listen to our podcast, visit podcast.schnepsmedia.com or stream and subscribe us through all major podcast networks. <laughs> <laughs>